This is the Millennial Millionaire Through Real Estate Podcast. Last year at the age of 27, I quit my job and retired, and I'm now living off about $15,000 per month in passive income. You're listening to the Millennial Millionaire Through Real Estate Podcast, where we discuss tangible tips, tricks, and best practices for becoming financially free. The show is designed for people who want to either start real estate investing or for those who want to scale their real estate business. What's going on, everyone? This is Jonathan Farber, your host of the Millennial Millionaire Through Real Estate Podcast. I hope you're all well and healthy. For any first-time listeners, thanks for being here. The goal of this show is to explore ways to become financially free through real estate or to increase passive cash flow through real estate. A little background on myself, I work in corporate America at a software company. My side hustle is real estate. I currently own eight rental units and looking to add more this spring. I have house hacked, bird, flipped, and done short-term rentals to name a few strategies. My current focus is 20 to 30 unit apartment buildings in Ohio and Kentucky. I love to network and learn. So if you'd like to connect further, feel free to find me on LinkedIn, Facebook, or BiggerPockets. All right, guys, today we have a really cool episode. Someone who, believe it or not, retired at 27 years old off of about 10K a month of passive cash flow. Uh, it's been incredible to follow her journey. And now she's someone that I call a friend and uh, we've developed just a cool relationship with from Connections in Louisville, which I'll talk about in a sec, but uh, just an awesome story and just a really cool person. And also, as I've said before, I love having the chance to have female investors on the show as I just can't find that many of them. So also, if you know anyone that's a female investor killing it, would love to have them on um, just at any level. Just curious how they're doing it and uh, succeeding because it's just such a male-dominated industry. But uh, a little more about Rachel. She is a best-selling author and small multifamily investor. She built her portfolio in Louisville and uh, followed it up with best-selling books about how she did what she did. And she talks a little bit about the, the revenue that comes from that, but then also just how and why it came together and how she overcame some doubt that uh, a lot of people face when writing a book. Uh, as I said, she lives in, uh, she's from Louisville and she was investing there and living there, but she's actually living in Denver now. She just moved out there. And uh, if you follow her on social media after this episode, it's awesome to see she's hiking and checking out a lot of cool stuff that I'm sure people wish they could do if they had the time, but now she has the time because she's retired. So uh, she's not going to stay retired, but it's just something that she was able to achieve at a very young age, which is awesome. Uh, we first connected from someone who has actually been on the podcast and become a good friend of mine and business partner, uh, Rob Bergeron, who is based in Louisville, Kentucky, and uh, he just put us in touch. He had great things to say about Rachel. And uh, if Rob says that, it means something. So it's pretty cool. She's a small multifamily investor, as I mentioned. And uh, yeah, today the main focus of the episode or main takeaways that I had were how anyone can retire from real estate or retire through real estate in a couple of years. And I know a lot of people listening to this show are wondering how they can get to financial freedom or how they can earn a little bit more on the side from whatever they're maybe doing as a side hustle now and replace some of their income. So that's the main takeaway from this episode that anyone can do it. And she talks about the tangible hows, that you can do it and how she did it. And it's just incredible. It's an awesome story. Uh, today's tangible tip for anyone that is on the fence about getting into this business or is considering it or just has, has started the process, I recommend go ahead and call under and get pre-approved. Why? 
because that's the first step. It gives you your footing to know where and what you can do based on your financial situation. And I know people say, oh, it's going to hurt my credit. I might as well wait until I'm, I'm right there. I'm about to do it. But I actually look at it a little differently. It doesn't hurt your credit that much. And you learn a lot about the process when you talk to other lenders. And at the same time, it also starts a little bit of a clock. It's almost like a little bit of an accountability for you. So pair all those reasons, one, accountability, two, learning, and three, it just lets you know where you stand based on your financial situation. So maybe it'll tell you you're actually on the right track or you're not, or you'll have to make some changes. And sometimes you can course correct, but only if you know your credit's lower than it should be, or you're only able to get pre-approved for a certain amount. So I'd want to know it. It's something that before I start any process, I take a quick snapshot analysis of what my financial situation is and what loan I'll be able to get. And then from there, I go about doing it. So that's the quick tip for today, a tangible tip rather. And yeah, I just think anyone should do it. So without any further ado, let's get into today's amazing episode with Rachel Richards. All right, Rachel, what's going on? Welcome to the podcast. Hey, Jonathan. Thanks. How are you? I'm doing great. I, uh, I told you before, just a little hectic moving into this place in Raleigh and all the fun stuff that goes along with moving and unboxing and slight rehab, but you know, it's all good. And, uh, yeah, all exciting stuff moved into a new place. So can't complain. How are things out by you? Uh, the things are great. I can relate that we, we had just moved here to Colorado a couple months ago, you know, right in the middle of the pandemic. So I know how that is. I'm glad that you made it. Okay. <laughs> yeah. And we'll get into all that. And, uh, yeah, I've been following, like we were talking about before, it looks like you've been having a great time out there hiking and exploring, uh, all the sites and stuff. So typical intro question for those that don't know, I'd love to dig into your story and your background, who you are and how you kind of got to where you are. So from a high level, you mind just kicking us off with your background and uh, how you got started in this whole investing journey? Yeah. So I have a lot of things going on. I I used to be a financial advisor. I'm also a best-selling author of two books on financial literacy, Money, Honey, and Passive Income, Aggressive Retirement. I own almost 40 rental units in Kentucky. And then what people find most interesting about me is that last year at the age of 27, I quit my job and retired, and I'm now living off about $15,000 per month in passive income. So a lot of people kind of want to know, well, what's the high level overview? How'd you do this? So my, my journey of creating passive income started in 2017. The beginning of that year, we had $0 in passive income. That year, my husband and I bought our first duplex. And then later on, I published my first best-selling book, Money Honey. So we had these two passive income streams, rental income and royalty income. And we focused on growing them as much as we possibly could over the next few years and just scaling everything out. And fast forward to today, we, again, we now own over, over almost 40 units and I have two books and the income streams, those are my two biggest income streams, but I have four total passive income streams now. Okay. That's going to hook so many people. Cause that's just what everyone wants. Like so many people listening to this right now, I'd say the majority of the listeners are people that are in W2 jobs or beginner investors trying to figure out how do you, how do I scale? How do I create more passive income? And how do I maybe leave the job that I want? So I'd love to dig into maybe some of your steps at the beginning. Uh, if it was a first deal or a first stream that you acquired or started cultivating, um, that really got you kicked off and down the path. Yeah. And I'll say too, I was also working full-time throughout this journey until I was able to quit my job last year. So it, it was a lot of sacrifice, 
but I always tell people, you know, there's advice that's given, like take a leap of faith and the net will appear. And I, I tend to not agree with that because I think um, any, if you quit a job and you don't have any income coming in, then you're operating out of a place of panic and desperation. And that's not how you want to feel when you're starting to invest or starting a business. So I think it's, it's so doable to do this on the weekends, on the, in the evenings. And that's exactly what I did. My husband and I were working full time. We were investing in real estate on the weekends and managing our properties. And then I was writing my books in the evenings. Was it hard? Yes. Is it worth it now in hindsight? Yes, absolutely. Um, we, I had wanted to invest in real estate for as long as I can remember. I've always thought it's one of the best tools for building long-term wealth. So my husband and I started looking for a property in 2016. Uh, patience is key. I mean, don't settle for something that's less than what you want. So it took us nine months to find that first property. And I'm just so glad that we were patient throughout that process and waited for the right opportunity. And we found this duplex in Louisville. And I, I also have my real estate license. It's just for my own purposes. I don't have clients or anything. But because I had my real estate license, I was able to access the MLS and get a hold of deals faster than other investors. And this one in particular, it was an expired or canceled listing. So I was basically following up with the listing agent saying, hey, what's the story? Are you going to relist it? She was like, yes, we will eventually. I'll let you know. And I just kind of kept pestering her. <laughs> and I would, some other people might see it as pestering, but I just thought I was being assertive and persistent and following up. Mm -hmm. and, she, and that paid off because when that property finally was, they were about to relist, she contacted me before they put it on the market. And she said, hey, do you want to make an offer? And I was like, yes, I absolutely want to make an offer. And so that deal worked out. It's one of the best deals we've ever done. The duplex was $100,000. Even it's a great price anyways, but even for Louisville, Kentucky, that's a great price. Mm -hmm. So my husband and I put down $20,000 on it and it was immediately cash flowing $500 per month in profit. So it was a great ROI. I still tell my husband that's probably the best investment we'll ever make. And that's what got us started with the real estate. And was that a house hack or is it a true investment property to start? It was a true investment property. So a lot of people ask, well, where'd you come up with that 20 grand? Yep. So we had a couple of things going for us. Um, I Have you heard of Cutco Cutlery, Cutco Knives? Of course. And I know <laughs> it. Have you read Giftology, John Rulon? Yes. Yes. The Cutco guy. Yeah. yeah and yeah, Hal yeah. Elrod, who wrote The Miracle Morning, is also a Cutco guy. I forgot that. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yep. Love it. Keep going. Yeah. So I sold Cutco Knives to pay my way through college. I, I paid for college all on my own with scholarships and with my own work. And I graduated debt-free by selling knives. And then my husband was, is a military, uh, a Navy veteran. So he used his military benefits to pay for his college. So neither of us had student debt. So that was a huge thing we had going for us. And we were also pretty good at saving. I've never made a six-figure income. And I've been able to make it as far as I have financially. But my first job out of college, I was making $32,000. And I was still trying to find a way to live off of 50% of my income and save half of my income. And so I was doing that even when I was making $32,000. So we were just diligent. We saved enough money. And by the time I was 24 years old, I had $10,000. My husband had $10,000. So we kind of pulled it together. And that's how we bought our first duplex. So what's your advice for someone that's maybe 
on the edge right now of doing their first deal. I love the part that you talked about being patient, waiting for the right property. Um, but let's say you're, you're talking to someone right now, coaching someone who is starting at square one again, like you did. What advice would you give to them if you could go back in time talking to yourself? I would say to over, over, overestimate your expenses. <laughs> and I think the number one mistake that new investors make is when they calculate their expenses and they're doing that initial analysis, trying to project how profitable profitable to be, I think people tend to underestimate their expenses. You know, a lot of people, not really real estate investors, but maybe the average person think, oh, if my rental income is this and my mortgage is this, here's how much I'm going to make. And that could not be farther from the truth because there's so many expenses. There's vacancy and there's maintenance and repair. There's HOA fees, utilities, you know, are you or the tenant going to pay for the utilities, capital expenditure. And what I always tell people is you have to build in the expense of a property manager from the get-go because probably most of us don't want to quit our jobs to become full-time landlords. At least that's not what I wanted to do. And sure. although we started off self-managing our properties, I still wanted to make sure that the numbers were going to work once I hired a property manager. So build that number in from the get-go. That way you can hire them later and you won't be worried about your return or if it's going to eat away at your profits. And then always build in another just 20% of expenses as just a miscellaneous bucket. But yeah, that's the advice I would give somebody. Just be really, really conservative when you're projecting your cash flow. Spot on. I could not agree with that more. And that's something that I learned very quickly on my first deal where you become a spreadsheet expert and then reality is a different thing. But again, learning that on your first deal isn't so bad as long as you keep going. So um, one question that just for people that may be listening and thinking is they often go back and forth. Do I want to find an on-market deal, an off-market deal? Um, right now in 2020, there's a lot of things going on, but I guess just for, for someone starting out right now, do you think they need to find an off-market deal to get started? Can they find something on the MLS? Or if you recommend them go off-market, any strategies for doing that? Yeah. And I have found all of my deals on the MLS, actually. I've been extremely lucky. I know that's like crazy so to hear. It is. Yeah. So I definitely think you can find a deal either way. But if you're going to look at things on the MLS, the big thing I had going for me is that I had my real estate license. So there was this one property that I remember buying and it had come up and it was listed on the real estate. And I set my own search and subscription up so that whenever a new property that met my criteria was listed, I would get an instant email. So I would get notified within minutes. And I saw this property. It took me 30 seconds maybe to look at it. And I was like, this is amazing. I thought the seller had mispriced it. I was out there within 30 minutes. And then I said, I was making an offer on the phone and I beat out every other investor and real estate agent. Cause there were showings all day after me because other people started to see it. So that was a huge advantage. I think if you're going to try to look for deals on the MLS, consider getting your real estate license or just working with a realtor that you know is really, really on top of it. And the other benefit of having my real estate license for my, for my own purposes, again, is that I was representing myself as the buyer's agent. So anytime we closed on a property, I would get a commission check. So we would deplete, we would wipe out our savings on the down payment of, of a property, but then I would immediately get a commission check for thousands of dollars. And that helped me kind of kickstart our savings again so we could save up for the next down payment. So that was a huge benefit. In terms of off-market 
leads, um, I used to work with somebody who flipped a lot of properties and we would do a lot of probate leads. So that's where you go. Can you define that just for those that don't know? Oh yeah, sorry. Yeah. So probate is basically where, you know, somebody has passed away. There's an estate that's in probate and that just means it's in the process of like figuring out who the beneficiaries are and what's going to happen to everything. Like, I don't know the legal terms, but <laughs> that is my understanding of it. So, Perfect. um, you know, there's a lot of people that I think maybe look down on this because it can feel slimy. It can feel like you're taking advantage of somebody. And I do think that investors out there do uh, approach this in maybe not the right way. But if you are, you have integrity and you really look at it as, hey, this person is a lot under a lot of distress, maybe is emotional, they just want to get rid of the property and you can offer them a solution, I absolutely think it can be a win-win. And so that's something we would do. I would literally go to the probate, the courts and the probate offices and spend hours downloading all these leads. We would handwrite out letters and then mail them out. And we would do that probably once or twice a month. And I think it works well because there's not a lot of people that are willing to go down to the courts and down to the probate offices and sit at their computer and actually get all those leads. Just thinking about that, it, it reminds me of something I hear David Green say all the time, which is the hard activities can yield some of the highest results just because if you think about it, people don't want to do it. So anything that people don't want to do, if you can train yourself to get good at, anyone listening out there, even if you just double down on that activity, you will be amazed what the results are if you stick with it for 60 days or 90 days and what it could do for your business. It's a short-term sacrifice and you're leaning into something hard. And then after that, you could probably put a system on top of it or a process or hire someone. But just doing the hard thing is what I'm hearing you talk about in your journey and being patient and then going out and finding deals. Just one other comment. I know you know Sharon Bornholt. Um, for, I forget what episode it was, but we had her on here and she really changed my entire perception of probate and just how she talks to sellers and has that relational um, conversation instead of, Hey, I'm here to basically capitalize on your misfortune. So mm. I don't remember what episode it was. And I know, you know, Sharon well, um, but guys go check that episode out or just anything Sharon has done. Sharon Bornholt, she's amazing. She's, she's one of the coolest women I know in real estate, coolest people I know in real estate, but I know you know her well. And I don't know, is that someone that you like learned from or knew of in the area when you were still in Louisville? Yeah, I think we ha just ha had all, you know, mutual connections and everything. So I kind of knew of her, follow her online. She's brilliant. Yeah. Um, and I'll have to listen to that too, because I want to hear what she says. <laughs> yeah, she's so good. So um, you, you mentioned a couple other points. I don't want to skip over because I just think they're so important. Um, and just like how you talk about that first deal. So you were being very conscious, just to summarize, being very conscious of your saving, your spending, um, you knew what you wanted. You kind of had that goal set, which uh, you talk about a lot in your book. And uh, I know there's a lot of things we could talk about. The book we will talk about later. It's just so good. We're reading it right now for book club, as I mentioned. But you started with the goal in mind, and then you came up with the plan, and then you came up with the actions. So you do that first deal, and I have to imagine it must feel pretty good. You executed on what you wanted. It took a little while, but now you're cash flowing $500 a month. Uh, what happened next from an actual like next deal perspective, but also from your mindset perspective after getting a first deal done? Oh my gosh, the first deal, it changes everything. Because up until then, it's just this abstract idea in your head. And it's just a hope. You don't know if it's real. So it's like, man, I really want to achieve early retirement, financial independence. My plan was to do it all through real estate initially. 
I just didn't know if it was going to work. I'd read other people do it. But once we had that first deal done, then everything clicked. And I was like, yes, this is real. I can replicate this process and I can, I can now see the end goal and I can see how there's a path to get there. So I just would say it's so encouraging and inspiring. And I think it just made us double down even more. So we got even you know more serious about our savings. We that cash flow it was going to be reinvested into the next down payment for the next property so we just kind of got back on the wagon started looking again and you know one thing i'll say back to the be patient is it absolutely can feel discouraging if you've been looking for months for a deal and you haven't found anything and i definitely got to that point as well in my first few deals there were properties we made offers on that fell through. There were properties we had accepted contracts on that we had to back out of because of the inspection. And so after enough of that, it can definitely feel like, man, is this ever gonna work out for me? I would just say, keep your head down, You know, keep your nose to the ground, keep grinding. You will definitely come upon the right deal. So I think the next one, the next one we purchased also took us nine months to find, but also was an absolutely amazing deal. And we own now six properties total. It's a mix. We have two single family, one duplex, and three buildings that are 10 to 12 units each. Mm -hmm. Okay. That's awesome. So it sounded like you kept stacking. Just one thing I want to go back to on that is what would you say to the person that's, that's out there right now? Maybe they're a couple months into it. Maybe they're just starting and they're hearing on podcasts. People say you can't find a deal right now. The market's too hot. 2020. Um, there's multiple offers. How did you do it? And what's your advice for someone that's maybe hearing that and getting discouraged and not being able to find deals? I think, well, I disagree. I think you can definitely find a deal right now. Um, you have to do the, maybe you can't on the MLS because when things get competitive, that's when the MLS becomes very saturated. So it might be the time to start looking for those off market deals. But I would say, um, I would say, you know, there's, there's a couple things you can consider. So I'm now a long distance landlord. All of my investments are in Kentucky and I live in Colorado. But if you're, if you can't find a deal in your city, or if you live in a city like in California or New York city, where things are just too expensive and you can't invest there, do not be afraid to look at other cities. You know, I personally know somebody who lives in Arizona and she decided to invest, I think in Wisconsin, she now has, a, has an Airbnb. She made this all happen this year and she's making a ton of money from it. And it's so easy to do from long distance. I, I always talked about it, but now I'm actually walking the walk. So now I can actually say, you know, no excuses. If anything, it's become easier to manage our properties now that we've moved away. Because when we were in Kentucky and something happened, we would be down at our properties multiple times a week. Now that we're gone, we can't go down there when someone calls. So we're forced to outsource everything. So it's made us, it's forced us to streamline and make everything more efficient. So I would say, you know, don't, don't be scared to look outside of your market and invest in a different state. Totally. And I think that I, people can follow that. And I talk about that a lot. And I, I want people to understand I'm practicing what I'm preaching. If they hear me say that, I mean, I lived in Kentucky for two and a half months because I wanted to learn about that market as an area outside of New York or Raleigh, which I thought became too expensive. Uh, I can't let us move on without talking about managing property from out of state, uh, what you thought it was gonna be like, what it is like, and some of the systems and processes that you've put in place to make it a little bit more manageable. 
Well, I can't talk about property management without also telling the story of the biggest mistake I ever made in real estate, which was awful at the time, but it's kind of funny now. So, and this happened when we were still in state, we were in Kentucky, we were trying to hire a property manager because we were just over our own capacity. We were both working full time still, and we couldn't do everything ourselves. So it was time to hire somebody. There was a couple that had been working for us for about a year and a half. So, so hardworking. I mean, hardest working people I knew. They always went above and beyond. They were always willing to do more work. And they did stuff for us like cleaning and some maintenance and just various things for our properties. So we decided, well, it would be great if we could hire an individual or an employee because that way we wouldn't have to pay them as much as we would a property management company. So we thought, well, let's try out this couple and see how they do. So we hired them, we made them employees of our company. Um, everything started off great. And then things really went downhill. So it, it only took about, I don't know, six months. But one, one Saturday, my husband Andrew showed up at the properties to collect rent from the lockboxes and noticed that there was a lot of rent missing. And it wasn't just the normal tenant paying late. There was a significant amount missing. So of course we're calling our employees saying, Hey, where are you guys? Do you know what's going on? And of course they're not answering. And as it turns out, they stole $6,000 of rent that day and left disappeared. And we found that they had been squatting in vacant rooms on our properties for almost a year. Oh my God. Yes. They stole our master key. So we had to get every door in every single property rekeyed. And there's a warrant out for their arrest now. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. That's it was wild. It was awful. Um, what had happened is they had gone on drugs. We found out later. So mm -hmm. it just was so unfortunate. I mean, people that we trusted, people that had come to our personal home to meet with us and that's where we did our training, just that you have this relationship with, and then you feel so violated when something like that happens. Um, there were definitely red flags that I, and I wish I had kind of listened to my gut instinct a little bit more in those last few months leading up to it. But I, I was so busy at the time that, I mean, that's kind of my excuse basically for why I was like, oh, it's probably fine. <laughs> what, what were some of those red flags? Looking back hindsight, obviously. So here's the biggest one that I wish I had just done dug into is I couldn't fill a vacancy in 24 hours. When I'm on top of it and I'm doing things all on my own, filling vacancies are not a problem. We price things well and it always can be very fast. And I had even shown them, you know, we had three different vacancies one weekend and I set up all these different showing appointments, like six people showed up. I filled all three just, you know, that one day. So I knew it was doable. And after a few months with this couple, I just noticed that things were vacant. I was starting to get stressed out. I was like, why are things still vacant? I kept, we just kept trying to retrain them over and over. We were like, hey, maybe we can come to a showing appointment with you just to see how you're talking to people. And then they just started saying, oh, that showing canceled or they would invite us to one, but then they'd be like, oh, this person just canceled. So we could never get to a showing appointment with them. Mm -hmm. And we found out later that what they were doing is they, they were filling the vacancies within 24 hours and they were skimming the first couple weeks of rent. And then later they were saying, oh, we just got this person moved in. So yeah, like a couple weeks later, I'd be like, man, this, this has been vacant for so long. 
And so, yeah, they just hid it from us. They were filling them, skimming the rent, and then acting like somebody had just moved in, which is very uh, a popular scam, as it turns out. Really? I was going to yes. say, it almost seems like it would be hard to do or like intricate, but I guess they figured out they could just kind of say it wasn't filled and then just yeah. take the money and pocket it. And they were never supposed to handle rent. They were never supposed to touch cash, collect rent, do anything. The tenants were supposed to pay rent directly into the lockboxes. But this couple would meet the tenant. They would build a relationship. They'd get the tenant to trust them. They'd say, oh, the process has changed. You just pay us directly. And so that's what they were doing. So, I mean, super wow. eye-opening. It's, it's almost embarrassing now because it just seems so obvious and something that I should have known. I mean, I just felt like a sort of a total amateur, but I like to tell that story so that other people can learn from my mistakes. And the moral of the story is don't be cheap. Do not like, you know, skip, you know, skip out here on hiring a high quality property manager. Because the thing is, if we had hired a property management company that was licensed, bonded and insured, and one of their employees did this to us, they would have been liable, not us. So I absolutely recommend hiring the legit people. Don't be cheap in this area. <laughs> What's your advice to someone that is looking to fill a property? They're, they're looking to, I, one other thing, I love how you said you, you budget in the cost of property management, even if you're going to do it yourself. I think that's so important so that people can have that long-term vision to actually leave that job one day that they've created for themselves. Otherwise you leave one job and go to a worse one. Anyway, what is your advice to someone on tangible ways to fill a property with good tenants if they're just starting out as a property manager, like ways to list the property, um, systems to do showings, uh, everything like that if they're kind of starting from square one? Yeah, we, I think the best place to list the property for rent is on this platform called Cozy, C-O-Z-Y. That's what we use. You can list properties, you can take applications, you can manage rent payments all on this platform and it's super easy to use. And I love that because when you list, when you list it on Cozy, it will automatically send it out to all these different sites. Now we also used to list it on Zillow, but I think they just changed their policy where it now costs $9.99 a month per listing to have yeah, something did. listed. And yeah. I was like, oh my gosh. So I don't, I honestly don't know if we're gonna list on Zillow anymore. Mm -hmm. I think I'm probably just going to stick to cozy for now, but so that's a great platform. And there's a, a few things that we do in our process. First, we have a pre-screen email or a pre-screen questionnaire. And this is just to screen out candidates that potentially are not qualified. So we ask questions like, Hey, is your minimum credit score at least 600? Do you smoke? Is your income at least this amount? And if those things are not true. They don't meet the requirements. Then I'll say, Hey, you know, unfortunately you don't meet the requirements. I'm sorry. That way I haven't wasted my time going to do a showing for somebody that isn't even qualified. Now I will say you have to legally show anybody the property that's interested. So even if they're not qualified and they say, I still want to see the property, you have to show that to them. So just keep that in mind. Cause that, I don't think that's something I knew when I was first starting out, but that's what we do to screen out unqualified people. And then another thing that we do just so that we're not wasting our time. And we've gotten so, so good at this over the years, but I never schedule a showing for a single person. Mm -hmm. I'll schedule three showings at the same time or four showings at the same time. That way, if and when somebody cancels or somebody just doesn't call you and doesn't show up, which I promise you will happen at least 30 to 40% of the time, you're not wasting your time by driving out to the property. So always schedule as many people as possible for the same showing time. 
those are probably my two, two biggest tips. Really good advice. That's one that I think people, and even for like, there's so many other reasons. There's a safety component if you're one-on-one with the person. And two, there's also a component of that social norm that if people think other people are there, they will want it more. And it drives up a little bit of competition in the property. Um, just one last question, just to, to debunk or kind of check any box that someone would have as a reason to not do this. Um, I, I get this question a lot is where do I get my leases or how do I know if my lease is secure, safe for a property that I self-manage? Any advice on that? Definitely have an attorney, first of all, but it's, like, don't feel intimidated by it. I mean, literally my lease was a, was a combination of different leases that I found on the internet. So I drafted it up by myself. Then I had an attorney review it just to make sure it was legit and I wasn't missing anything. But the funny thing about the lease is my lease has probably grown so much since I first started because different scenarios will happen and I'll be like, oh man, I need to add that into my lease. I need to add that into my lease. All these things will happen and your lease will get longer and longer. But so yeah, don't, I mean, don't overcomplicate it, put it together on your own or ask another real estate investor, you know, network with other people, see if you can read over their lease and then just have an attorney review it and just go from there. I mean, you're going to make mistakes as you go. It's just not going to be perfect the first time. I'm still learning and I'm three years in and almost 40 units in. Got it. Okay. Makes total sense. So I think we're, we're good at least on some of the like tangible parts on how to stand up and self-manage. That's one that I just hear so many people get stuck on and it is daunting, but I think with a process and a system, you can definitely overcome it. Uh, I'd love to talk about the other streams of income that you've developed. And one thing that you talked about, which uh, it seems like you overcame really easily was I think a lot of people with this, they face imposter syndrome from the sense of they do a deal, they do five deals and they still don't feel like they're qualified to tell people or teach people how to do it. And you just blew that completely out, not only just dispelling that, but writing books, creating an educational platform and kind of brand and now teaching people how to do what you did. So can you talk to that a little bit when you first got started, how writing a book kind of came together in your head and if you had that thought, how you kind of overcame it and then created content and built a brand around your business and kind of how they went in parallel? Oh, absolutely. And I'm so glad you asked. When I first started writing Money Honey, I was at the point in my life where all of my friends and family were coming to me for financial advice. And that was great. I loved helping people. And I also wondered, well, I wonder why they're not reading books or learning on their own. And I remembered, oh yeah, personal finance is boring. (laughs) It's dull. It's complex. It's intimidating. No one likes to learn about it. And I thought to myself, well, how can I make this topic sassy and fun and simple? And that's where the idea for Money Honey came from. So there's a couple of things that helped me get going, but one resource I recommend is the book published by Chandler Bolt. Because up until that point, this book had been this idea in my head. I kind of always wanted to write a book deep down, but never really took it seriously because I just didn't know where to get started. But once I read published, it was just this really concrete outline of, hey, here's what you do. Start here, then do this. Here's how you market and publish and launch it and everything. And that book taught me 99% of what I needed to know to successfully self-publish my book. So that was a huge help. The word that first came pouring out of me, it was something I just felt so compelled to do. And I was very enthusiastic and excited. And then after a while, I was about four months in. And by this time, I was really speaking to myself in a negative manner. And I was saying things like, this writing is crap. 
who are you to write a book on finance? Who do you think you are? If you go through with this, it's going to be an embarrassment. That's what I was telling myself. And because of that severe self-doubt, I quit writing. I totally quit the book. I had no intention of ever picking it up again. I was just done. And it wasn't until I had lunch with a coworker who's also a good friend and I told her about this book idea and she was like, Rachel, what, what are you thinking? You have to do this. You're really onto something here. I can sense this. Please finish what you started doing. And so thanks to her reassurance, I picked it up again. And in the end, the only reason I went through with publishing it is because I told myself, if I can just help one person, that's all I want. At the time for me, it wasn't about money. It wasn't about building a business or becoming famous or anything like that. I just wanted to genuinely help people. And I think one of the reasons Money Honey did so well is because that was my purpose. And I think if I was trying to make all this money or make, you know, go for this money grab, people really would have seen right through that. But I'm so thankful for my friend to call me out because it was the imposter syndrome. It was really hitting me hard. And I'm thankful for that because Money Honey has been more successful than I ever could have imagined. I mean, it's helped thousands of female millennials and it now has over 550 five-star reviews on Amazon. That's so cool. That is awesome. Thank you. And we're reading it for book club. So just trying to spread the message even further. Seriously, it's awesome. So we'll link it, but everyone listening really needs to check that book out. Um, it's just like what the other thing that stood out to me about that book and your nature, and, and this will just kind of be the last topic before we go to the show wind down is you talk about money in such an open and direct way that I don't hear often. And even in a lot of the books that people don't understand what actually comes from a rental property. They don't understand the profit that comes from it or the, the challenge that comes from it. Like I read a lot of books and listen to a lot of podcasts. People don't talk about the actual dollar value of if you make X amount a month passively, like you saying $15,000 a month passively. I don't take that any way other than it's just explaining on what you can do and what the outcome from this process is. But I think people are so um, shy about it or a little reserved about it. They don't know if they should be saying or shouldn't be saying it, but that's the tone of the book that I got from the beginning was it's very direct and it's very step-by-step, but it just shows you what you can do and what you can kind of like achieve with this. So I guess just my last question before the wind down is, was that something you've always been, I guess, direct and open about money or were there any people that helped you think that through or groups that you were a part of that talked about money and I guess the, the openness to discuss it? That's such a great question. We're always taught growing up, there are things you don't talk about, religion, politics, money. And I, so I'd always been very private about my money, you know, really growing up and everything. And especially as I've accumulated wealth, you know, they say that as you get wealthier, don't share things about your money and your income. But I've just realized with my readers and my platform, there's an aspect of transparency that I always want to be there. And I always want to encourage other people to be open about their money because we can't make progress in you know negotiating our salaries or knowing what we should be paid unless we're talking about these things so i do i really am passionate about removing the stigma and just being open and transparent and honest about it so as i have grown my income streams that's one thing i've always been a hundred percent honest about um even just a couple months ago i sent out an email to my newsletter and i said here's how much my passive income has decreased from coronavirus and I went through my four income streams and I was like, here's how this, 
much one has decreased and actually this one's been doing better and all in all everything kind of offset but I got such a response from that email saying, wow, thank you so much because I was wondering this whole time, you know, what was going on with your income this year. And this is really helpful and inspiring to see. So I think it's really helped my readers stay motivated and stay inspired and just be able to follow along my journey. Such a good answer. And yeah, people just can relate to it so much. So thank you for that. Uh, I guess with that, you cool if we go to the show wind down, some rapid fire, rapid fire process and systems questions? Let's do it. All right. Awesome. Um, how do you look at networking? Do you do anything, I, I'd say, proactively, any groups you're part of or people you need to surround yourself with on a day-to-day -day basis to keep good mindset, uh, pushing yourself and stay accountable? Oh, gosh, yes. And I used to hate networking. I hated the word. I hated doing it. I avoided it. I'm very much an introvert. And if I could just kind of stay in my own bubble and write books and, and not talk to anybody, I probably would. But when you're a business owner and you're selling something, that's really not possible. For, you can't just not network. Um, and something I've been really, really great at this year is networking, especially since this is my first year that I'm completely out on my own. I've just realized there is a value in knowing other people that have answers to things that you don't have answers to and, you know, connecting with other authors and finding people you can bounce ideas off of and like figuring out how you can give value to them first and foremost before ever asking for things in return. I think that's the biggest thing when it comes to networking. So I've managed to change my mindset and it's something I really enjoy and look forward to now. And I just need to comment on this. That was something you did, which a couple other people have, but I, I consider those people to be like, you're in the rock star bucket because you did something after we first met, which was asking, how can I add value? And then there were some things I needed help with and you followed up on. And even still, like you've helped me get on some other podcasts and made intros and connections. That's such a, the, the approach we talk about here is to be value add before value ask. And that's just the best way to build the relationships and start off with it. And that was just such a perfect example of it. So just like not calling it out for any other reason than if anyone out there is thinking, how do I network or get in front of the right people, try to add value before you ask for it. And you'll be amazed at what happens. So a little side mm, tangent 100%, there. But no, I 100% agree. That's great advice. It just, it just stood out so much. Um, okay. So another part, systems and process or day planning. Um, do you use any tools or how do you organize your days, your time, paper notebook, digital notebook, to do CRM softwares, anything like that? We just love that stuff. I feel like I've tried everything under the sun. Same. I've tried not having a plan. I've tried Trello, but one thing that has changed my life that I was introduced this year is this, which is my bullet journal. And have you heard of bullet journals before? I have, but I've never used yeah. one. I think they get like a bad rap because when I had first heard of the term, I thought it was people making these fancy artistic spreads. And I was like, who has time for that? But that's not really how the bullet journal was intended to be. It is just a really simple way of planning and scheduling and organizing your to-do list. And for whatever reason, this has just clicked with me in a way that nothing else has. So this helps me stay organized. It helps me make sure I'm doing the important strategic things rather than just getting caught up in the busy work. And I highly recommend it to anybody else out there who had been struggling like I was before. Okay. That's awesome. We will link that and I will check that out because I feel like I've done a lot of the same. So really cool. Uh, what are your favorite ways to stay educated and any specific people on those platforms you like or recommend? I love to read. I've always been an avid reader and I truly think I, I just have a lot of 
a, just a wide variety of knowledge in my head. And I think it's because I've read so many books. The most recent one I read is called The War of Art by Stephen Pressfield. Totally blew my mind. I mean, every artist, every creator, business owner, writer needs to read this book immediately. So yeah, and a couple other of my favorite books, The Millionaire Fastlane by MJ DeMarco is one of the first books I read that just changed my whole mindset on moving from a consumer mindset to a producer mindset. Um, I love Tim Ferriss, Tools of Titans, and 4-Hour Workweek. His books are amazing. And then there's so many podcasts. Yours is amazing. So I have to give you a shout out. You guys have to leave Jonathan a five-star review. Love this podcast. Um, and I've always followed Paula Pant of Afford Anything. She also has a great podcast that I love. We will check that out. That one I have not heard of. The other one's awesome, awesome recommendations. So I'll check those out. But um, Paula Pant, and thank you for saying that. Yeah. Um, so uh, the, the next question is about any, any uh, leverage you use. So you had those employees that didn't work well. Do you use any other employees or virtual assistants or anything like that that can help free you up or just not do things that you don't like doing? Absolutely. Outsourcing has been huge for us. As we've had more money and less time, outsourcing has become so important because time is our most valuable resource, right? We can always make more money. We can't just create more time. We're all born with a limited amount of time. So it's very scarce. So that's become important, not only in the real estate investing, but in my book business and in what I do, because I want to spend time now that I can, like I can work when, where, and if I want. So if I'm going to sit down and work, I want to do the things that I love to do, which is writing and helping people and generating content. And there's a lot of other things like my email is the bane of my existence and scheduling and my calendar. And I've actually just realized in recent weeks, how much time it's taking out of my week. And so I'm now looking for a virtual assistant. Someone recommended the website onlinejobs.ph. So I'm going to start there. But yes, I am working on, I have to be better about finding what else I can delegate or outsource because I'm also a control freak and that can be really hard for me at times. <laughs> totally. And I'll send you some stuff after this. We've added a couple of tour workflow now and nice. it's been really helpful. But yeah, email, welcome to hell. Um, <laughs> What's next for you in 2020, business-wise and personal? Yeah, you know, my husband and I have gotten to this point with our income where we had been sacrificing and working 80-hour weeks for two or three years straight. And this was our end goal. We were driving towards this. And now that we're here, we're like, oh my gosh, this, this is awesome. Let's just enjoy this for a second, you know? So I think we're going to just take this year and relax um, do all the things we love to do, which is hiking. As you know, <laughs> we also love to travel. I don't think there's going to be a lot of that this year. <laughs> um, and then the other thing that just personally that I've been enjoying is I've started to practice writing fiction. My big dream, even since I was a little girl is to write a fiction novel. So I've just been doing that for fun on the side. That is awesome. I'm sure if you do it, it'll be a hit, but Thank that you. is very cool. <laughs> um, what would you tell your younger self if you were starting out again? I would tell my younger self to just like calm down in a really nice <laughs> way. Maybe not in those words. Um, you know, slow down maybe is the right words because I, I just am really ambitious. I'm always kind of reaching for the next goal. And sometimes that makes it hard for me to enjoy where I'm, where I'm at and be grateful for what I have in the moment. And as I say, it's not the, you know, end result that's rewarding. It's the journey. 
So I think I would just tell myself, slow down, like you're going to get to where you want to be and you're going to achieve all the things you want to do. And there's always tomorrow. Mm -hmm. That's really good. Just made me think of a quote that it's so boring, but it's become one of my favorites, which is just haste makes waste. Anytime I rush something, it gets destroyed. So Ah. just take your time and it'll work out and patience. And then just, it's about the journey. I love that. Um, Where can people learn more about you? There's so many ways. What's the best way to, to consume your content or check you out these days? Yeah. So both of my books, Money, Honey and Passive Income, Aggressive Retirement are available on Amazon and Audible. And you can, my website is moneyhoneyrachel.com. That's where you can find out about my books and my course. And I will give your listeners access to my passive income starter kit for free. So if anyone wants to go download that, that's at moneyhoneyrachel.com slash bonus. Awesome. We will link that. So thank you for that offer. That's really cool. We will check that out. Um, cool. All right. There's one last question of the show. We ask it coming from that value add before value ask approach. I'm sure you get reached out to a lot based on everything you do. So the question is, is there anything right now that you need help with or someone could do to add value to your life before they ask for value? Oh, that's such an amazing question. Thank you so much. Um, you know, as a self-published author, getting a review on Amazon is a huge help because we don't have those big publishing houses behind us. So that's always helpful. And then my big goal is just to get on as many podcasts as possible this year. So if anyone out there knows a podcast host and thinks I'd be a good fit, I would love an introduction. All right. That's awesome. That is, yeah, I I was thinking that as I was reading your reviews, you have more reviews on your book, five star, just in general, than huge books that have like major publishing or bestsellers. Like I couldn't believe it. So yeah, you've been doing a really good job getting that out there, but it's great social proof, great branding. So I appreciate it. Yeah. Well, Rachel, this was so fun. I am so hyped that we got to do this. Um, I feel like every time I either consume your content or talk with you, I learn a lot. I was taking tons of notes throughout this and I know the listeners will the same just for whatever stage of the journey they're on. Uh, what you've done is really admirable and people can replicate it. So that's what makes it really fun and just, just cool to watch. So um, thank you for that. Before we part, any final words or last comment call to action for the audience? I will leave everyone with this. Anyone at any age and on any income can absolutely achieve financial independence. That is awesome. Well, there's nothing more to say on that. Rachel, thank (laughs) you so much for coming on. Best of luck in 2020 and beyond. Thank you so much. Same to you. Hey, you millennial millionaire, do you want more? Then head to the Millennial Millionaires Through Real Estate Facebook group, where there are tons of step-by-step walkthroughs, tools, templates, and free networking to help you achieve financial freedom through real estate. And if you want Jonathan to help you personally reach your goals, then feel free to set up a one-on-one call in the link below or message him on any social media platform and apply to, well, work with Jonathan. 